Um, today's command, the sixth commandment, or the sixth word, um, there's a temptation to just ask, has anybody here ever killed someone? No? Okay, we're, we're good. But it's not that easy. We're not good. And we're going to find out how not good we are as we look into the Word of the Lord. I heard on the radio a few months ago about something that had been showing up in the San Francisco area. Some people, and I don't know how many, who owned large SUVs were going to their vehicles to head for work in the morning only to find their tires deflated and signs on their windshields that said something like, you're killing people with your gas-guzzling vehicle. Hard to imagine, right? But that's the mentality of some of our fellow citizens who believe they are justified in making their point about the environment in such an emphatic and destructive way. But accusing big vehicle owners and drivers of murder seems like a bit of a stretch, to say the least. So if I were to ask how many here are murderers, I don't think there would be any hands raised. Back in the day, I can remember the standard reply of people who, when asked if they were okay with God, they would say, well, I haven't murdered anyone, right? Or in this context, I don't drive a big inefficient car or truck as if that by itself qualifies them for heaven. But one way of responding to that claim is to talk about who might be considered to have killed anyone as considered, considered from the standpoint of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But we'll get to that. That passage has already been read. So probably everyone here knows that the commandment forbidding the killing of another person is in Exodus 20, when Moses is given the, the ten words or the ten commandments at Mount Sinai. Bible scholar Peter Enns, E-N-N-S, in the NIV application commentary writes, a prohibition against murder is nothing new. Murder was reprehensible before this command was given, not only in the Pentateuch, Pentateuch, as far back as the story of Cain and Abel, but in the ancient Near Eastern world as well. Murder has just never been considered an acceptable behavior. This prohibition against killing another human being is commandment six and represents the first word of the second half of the Decalogue. The first five, which Pastor Jonathan has taught us, I'm trying to think of a word, but that's, it's not coming. He has elaborated on the first five. Had to do with our relationship with Yahweh, his worship and our keeping of the day he set aside as holy and our relationship with the parents God has given us. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last Sunday or you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon uh, on Commandment 5, I'd encourage you to do so. The link is in the pastoral letter that went out on Friday. The second half of the Decalogue informs how we relate to our neighbor. neighbor. So we can say we have the spelling out of love God, love neighbor. 
by which the lawyer who asked Jesus about the greatest commandment in Luke 10 summarized the law and did an admirable job. The basis for the sixth commandment then, Genesis 9, is, is in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. If you want to turn there real quick, real quick. <clears throat> I don't think this is in the bulletin. bulletin. But this is God's words to Noah after the flood. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of men, man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And then the Lord goes on, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. An echo of the, the uh, verse in Genesis 1 where the Lord commands them or instructs them to be fruitful and multiply. There are no ordinary people. All are created in the image of God. All of us, all of you, all the people in the world. Therefore, to take another's life is to destroy the image of God in that person. Even non-believers are creations of a sovereign, all-wise God who provides common grace to all and whose creative power and love is visible to all, regardless of whether they choose to see it. You can check that out in Romans 1. This quote is from How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments by Edmund Clowney and Rebecca Clowney-Jones. Here's the quote. Scripture gives the rationale for the preciousness of human life. God created mankind in his image. We are created for fellowship with God and called to be his stewards of creation. Insofar as we are reflections of God's image, we are not God himself, Thus, it is wrong to deify human life and to make everything dependent on its conservation. On the other hand, God himself has given life, and because he sets such high value on it, we are called to do the same. We cannot raise a grasshopper to the level of a human, nor can we keep a clean conscience when we eliminate a child's life through abortion or an elderly person's life through euthanasia. We'll return to the subject, the questions of abortion and euthanasia in a moment. Before moving on, we should note that the Mosaic Law did allow for things like the killing in self-defense, avenging the killing of a family member, capital punishment, to name a few. So the law against killing was not applied applied in any and every circumstance. Note here that the scope of capital punishment was quite broad, encompassing offenses offenses such as kidnapping, striking a father or mother, cursing a father or mother, being a sorceress, bestiality, and even profaning the Sabbath. 
you need to read the rest of Exodus and the Pentateuch to get the complete list. Suffice to say that God doesn't take lightly the transgression of his laws. I might mention here that I'm aware that there are those here who don't believe in capital punishment. All I'm doing at this point is showing its existence in biblical times as a way of speaking to how seriously God views the violation of his laws. Returning to abortion and euthanasia, we can say it's obvious our culture has grossly devalued human life. While many, perhaps most of us, celebrated the Supreme Court decision in June reversing the Roe v. Wade decision from 1973, which legalized abortion on demand, we have come in just a few months to the point where abortion advocates are militantly demanding the right to murder preborn humans and calling it health care. And the media gives the lion's share of the positive coverage to their side. Not only that, but politicians who have identified as pro-life are backing away. I suppose you've noticed that as we, in the, the run-up to this election. They're looking for ways to not alienate the more progressive, progressive segments of their constituencies. Admittedly, this is one of the most divisive issues of our day. But as Christians who say we believe the Bible, we find it hard to argue the personhood of the unborn, especially given the words of David in Psalm 139. Now, these words are familiar, but we do well to keep them in the forefront of our minds, especially in these times. Let me read for you Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. You may feel free to turn there if you'd like. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Do we think the psalmist considered the unborn person to be a real person? I think it's kind of hard to avoid that conclusion. On the subject of euthanasia, consider these words, from, again, from Edmund Clowney and Rebecca Clowney Jones. In April 2001, Holland earned the dubious honor of being the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide when the Dutch Senate legalized euthanasia. How far Holland has come. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch doctors refused to obey orders to let elderly or terminally ill patients die without further treatment. Yet it took only one generation, as Mac Malcolm Muggeridge has noted. Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge is a, a British uh, thinker, writer, commentator. And this is what he noted took on only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. 
Oddly, it was the doctors themselves who led the way in promoting the practice. And we see, we're seeing this in our country more and more. Well, clearly, something as momentous as euthanasia is a subject that could merit a sermon for itself, or perhaps a series of sermons, but I'll let Jonathan decide that one. Suffice to say that issues that saw more of a consensus a generation ago no longer feature that, at least in Christian circles. And we haven't even mentioned suicide. Where does suicide fit in? If we're not permitted to kill another human being because they're in the image of God, how about killing ourselves? Pat and I attended a conference two, uh, two weekends ago where one of the speakers, a pastor from the United Kingdom, told the story of a 30-year-old man in his church, well-loved by all, including children, who committed suicide quite unexpectedly, leaving the entire church groping for answers. Where does suicide fit into the you-shall-not-kill debate? I pose the question only to illustrate how complex and layered is the issue and to say that those matters, that these matters require much compassion and sensitivity. But we need to return to the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, which have already been read, but I would reread them so they are fresh in your minds in Matthew 5. <clears throat> Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In light of this, Honesty would require us all to confess to the act, the sin of killing. Jesus greatly expands the scope of the sixth commandment, just as he will do with the prohibition against adultery, which we'll look at next week. Ours is a culture that is both consumed by anger and glorifies it on social media platforms. I don't think you have to think too long to grasp that. There's anger everywhere. You go for a drive and somebody's cutting you off or honking at you or just, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. We see it pervasively. Some of us maybe have had our own episodes of road rage, thinking nobody will notice, but forgetting that we have a God who sees and hears everything we say or think. Consider this quote from biblical scholar Peter Lightheart. We perfect techniques to keep anger under wraps, polish a surface of smooth sociality most of the time. We even hide our anger from ourselves. The angriest people will be shocked to hear that they're angry, even though they live in continuous defiance of the sixth word or the sixth commandment. When we're, we're angry, with another image, image bearer, we are effectively telling them we'd rather they didn't exist. Another passage that speaks eloquently to this issue is in James 3, 
And I want to read it for you because they describe in vivid terms how damaging the tongue can be when controlled by anger. James 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Let's face it, nearly all of us, at one time or another, have a problem with anger. I know that I do. Although although I would claim that it's not as much of a problem as it was years ago, still, I have many regrets about how I damaged my children when they were young, even though I sought and received forgiveness from them. By the grace of God, there has been growth, but how much better it would be to have dealt with the sin much earlier. And my wife can tell you of my my irritability, which has harmed her, sending a message that, that she is somehow responsible for my sin of anger. We're working, working on that, but I would give you permission to talk to her if you need confirmation. <laughs> well, she's, she's half smiling, half grimacing. I'm not sure what to make of that. <clears throat> Finally, there is the question of what the sixth commandment requires of us positively. Is it enough simply to avoid actions that directly lead to the death of another person? What about actions not taken that effectively do the same? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we all know, the priest and Levite didn't injure the man who fell among thieves. They just walked past. Didn't do anything to alleviate his suffering. By contrast, the Samaritan took action. He inconvenienced himself, used his own resources, and saved the man's life at no small personal cost. We daily hear about those who are victims of crime, disease, natural disasters, and the like, and are able to send relief. Think about this without going ourselves, simply by clicking a few keys on our laptop or our smartphone. And I just, oh. (laughs) And there are numerous Christian organizations serving victims on the front lines. As I say this, I am aware of doing little or nothing myself to bring relief to those who have been thus victimized. Some serious self-examination is in order, perhaps for you as well. Here's the point. The Lord doesn't simply let us off the hook because we have not taken another's life literally. In Commandment 6, 
the necessary implication is that we are to preserve life whenever, wherever and whenever we can. Wait a minute. Ah. Consider these words from the Heidelberg Catechism. And these are questions 105 through 107, um, if you're curious. <clears throat> what is God's will for you and the sixth commandment? Answer, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be, a, be party to this in others, Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Well, question 106. Does this commandment refer only to murder? Answer, by re forbidding murder, God teaches us that he has, hates the root of mur murder Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Question 107. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? <clears throat> Answer, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. These questions and answers do exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. They expand the scope of the commandment in order that, as we are, obey the words of God, we become agents for blessing. And I would add that doing something like filling a, doing a shoebox. You may not be aware of the fact that is, and I'm going to look at Debbie as I say this, I don't think any child ever receives a second shoebox. I think they're always given as a first time. She's, she's nodding like this. So it's not as though there are children out there in the third world who get a shoebox every year. They get one. 10 million of them last year, last year, maybe 11 million of them this year. And as you participate in that and give of your own resources, it doesn't inconvenience you except to go and purchase the, the items that go into the shoebox. You bring it back here, from there, it's a hands-off proposition. Somebody else takes responsibility for getting it to that needy ch children. But I suspect when we get to heaven, we are going to find out amazing things about how God used something as simple as a shoebox to bring people and children and, and families into his kingdom. Um, I'm not sure how we could not do that. And then there are other places and, and uh, instances in which organiz Christian organizations are ministering to people who are victims of hurricanes and typhoons and all sorts of things. And as we respond to those appeals, and I, I'll be the first to say, I have kind of hardened myself because everybody wants your money. And, and there's, there's all the reasons in the world not to participate. 
Maybe I need to start looking for reasons to participate. This requires us to get out of our comfort zones and do something positive that will show the world what God is like. This is good news, Redeemer. It is our privilege to engage in this good work. Let me pray. Lord, we are situated in a culture where it's so easy to just keep to ourselves. We are comfortable. I don't know any of us here who has a question as to where the next meal is coming from. But we need to lift our gaze. We need to hear your words. We need to care for those who are not in our immediate circle of acquaintance. And in so doing, we are given the privilege of showing the world what you're like. And we're given the privilege of living out an ethic that positively embraces the notion of not killing another person. Lord, it's not always comfortable to think about these things, but you call us in so doing to show those around us what you are like. Would you help us in that endeavor? Would you help us, those of us, those of us who, who struggle with anger, who say things that communicate the message we would rather those pe- people to whom we're saying them does, don't even exist. Oh Lord, help us to live by a higher standard. May it be that the ethic that we employ to make decisions and to live our lives would be apparent to all and that you would help us as we participate in showing the world what you're like. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.